0: Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, gun violence, dismemberment, and suicidal ideation. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help on mental health and suicidal ideation, visit spotify.com resources. In April 1935, the Coogee Aquarium proudly displayed their newest exhibit, a 14-foot tiger shark. But within a few days of opening, the shark vomited up a human arm. This led to one of Australia's wildest unsolved murder cases, if it was a murder at all. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. I'm Carter Roy. You can find us here every Wednesday. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. April
0: 1935. A small crowd gathered around a pool at the Coogee Aquarium near Sydney only days earlier a tiger shark was captured off the coast of australia now it was the aquarium's main exhibit but the shark was acting weird for days it had refused to eat anything it seemed angry irritable like a toddler throwing a tantrum it couldn't communicate with its captors what was wrong it started swimming around its enclosure faster and faster The shark slammed into the glass wall then dove straight down to the bottom. The aquarium guests peered closer into the pool. They could see the shark swimming in erratic circles at the bottom, and then suddenly it stopped. A pungent brown froth erupted from its mouth, shark vomit. The scent was so rank it wafted up out of the water, spurring people in the crowd to plug their noses. Slowly, shapes floated to the top of the murky brown water. A bird's carcass had come up from the shark's stomach, the remains of a rat, another shark's head, and... a human arm. Witnesses noticed that the forearm had a tattoo. Two boxers facing off, one in red shorts, one in blue. Naturally, this made the local news, including the weekly newspaper Truth. Truth published a drawing of the tattooed forearm alongside the story. And that's how Ted Smith found out his brother might be dead. Ted went down to the police station and reported that the arm belonged to his brother, Jim Smith. The tattoo of the two boxers was unmistakable. Ted stated his brother left for a fishing trip in Cronulla a few weeks prior, and no one in their family had seen him since. Apparently, it was normal for Jim to take extended trips, so his wife hadn't worried much until the drawing of his disembodied arm turned up in the tabloids. After giving Ted Smith their sympathies, detectives studied the fingerprints taken from the shark arm and found a match. Three years earlier, in 1932, One Jim Smith was arrested for allowing illegal gambling in his club. He was a known figure in the criminal underworld with ties to the mob. And his fingerprints from that arrest matched the severed arm. On the surface, a shark attack on a fishing trip seemed to explain everything. But when the detectives gave the arm a closer look, they had a lot more questions. The severed arm ended between the shoulder and elbow and had clearly been cut with a knife, which meant Jim hadn't been attacked by a shark. He'd been attacked by a human. Detectives saw two options. One, Jim was still alive, San's arm, and they were looking for a missing person. Or two, Jim was murdered and other pieces of his body might still be floating in the ocean. So they took a two-pronged approach, combing the beaches around Sydney, while also inquiring if local business owners had seen Jim. The second strategy eventually paid off. A barman at the Cecil Hotel told the police he'd served Jim on April 7th. Then... Two hotel patrons remembered playing dominoes with Jim and his friend, Patrick Brady, the following day. They said that Jim and Patrick had been staying at a local cottage called Cord Joy on Tulumbi Street. The detectives followed the trail to the cottage, where they spoke to the owner, Percy Forbes. He reported that Brady moved out suddenly, before his lease was up, and he'd left the place spotless. Before moving out of the furnished rental, Brady replaced the mattress and trunk and scrubbed down the walls. He also scrubbed down the rowboat that came with the cottage, as if he was covering up the scene of a crime. It didn't help that some of the detectives were already well aware of Patrick Brady. He'd been brought in on suspected forgery earlier that year and authorities knew he was involved in Sydney's criminal underworld. This led to one of the major theories about what happened. Jim Smith was murdered at the cottage. His arm was cut off, and the rest of his body was crammed into the trunk, then dumped into the ocean. But as far as the police knew, Jim Smith and Patrick Brady were friends. Hoping for clarity... They interviewed Jim's wife, Gladys. They showed her a picture of Brady and asked if she knew him. Gladys did know him. Brady was a friend of Jim's. Then she told detectives that she'd received strange messages. First, somebody had called her neighbor's phone saying Jim would return the Monday after he left on his trip, which obviously didn't happen. Then her son received a letter. It read, Son, keep your mother quiet. I am in a jam. I plead it's okay. Call the cops off. Tell your mom I will have plenty soon and we will be all right. They want me. Something in town. Never mind. Be a man for me. Your loving father, Jim Smith. Destroy this. Gladys insisted the letter. Was a forgery. It just so happened that Patrick Brady was a master forger. He was also one of a few people who had the neighbor's phone number. So, soon after speaking to Gladys, the police finally tracked Brady down at his new home. They knocked on the front door. Brady heard that knock and assumed the worst. He left his wife to answer it and he booked it to the back of the house. He had every intention of fleeing but Sydney detectives had him surrounded. They brought Brady down to the station and put him in an office. They let him sit there for hours, sweating him out. According to Brady, he asked for his lawyer, but the detectives ignored his request. He also claimed that they threatened to charge his wife with concealing a crime if he didn't talk. Finally, around midnight, Brady agreed to make a written statement. He explained that he'd known Jim Smith for years, but most recently, he'd been helping Jim blackmail a man named Reginald Holmes. Over the years, Holmes had hired Jim for a variety of illegal business ventures. Most recently, sinking Holmes' yacht to commit insurance fraud. But the scam didn't work, and Holmes couldn't pay Jim. So, Jim got creative he hired Patrick Brady to forge Holmes' signature and began cashing checks off his accounts. He told Holmes what he was doing and threatened to rat out all of Holmes' illegal operations if he challenged the checks. Then, Jim and Brady took it a step further, blackmailing Holmes for his business associate signatures. Before long, Jim, Brady, and their friend Stanley Watson were cashing checks all over town. Brady said that he'd last seen Jim on April 10th. That day, he'd left Jim at the cottage he rented, but when he returned, Jim was gone. Brady insisted he hadn't seen Jim since, and he didn't forge the letter Jim's son received. Someone else must have written it. Maybe even Jim himself. After the interrogation, the police charged Brady with inducing a messenger to cash a forged check, and the magistrate set his bail extremely high to make sure he stayed behind bars while they kept investigating. This way, they had time to track down Reginald Holmes and make sure his side of the story lined up. When the detectives got to Holmes' house, he picked up his coat and accompanied them back to the station without a fuss almost like he knew this was coming. But the rest of the day did not go so easily. At the station, Holmes denied knowing who Brady even was, much less having been blackmailed by him. In his official statement, he wrote, I have never seen this man before, and he has never visited me at my shipyard nor my private home to my knowledge. Holmes did admit to knowing Jim Smith but he said he hadn't seen him at all that year. In the end, the police couldn't nail down how Holmes fit into Jim's disappearance, so they had no choice but to let Holmes go. Back at the station, they charged Patrick Brady with murdering Jim Smith. The evidence wasn't strong, but once he was facing charges, Brady started talking. As detailed in a 2020 book on the case by Philip Roop and Kevin Marr, Brady pinned it all on Holmes. When they confronted Holmes about this news story, he finally admitted to knowing Brady, but said Brady killed Jim. According to Holmes, Brady and Jim had a fight that escalated into Jim's murder. To cover it up, Brady hid Jim's body in the trunk at the house he was renting. Then, Brady stopped by Holmes' house with the arm. Allegedly, he knew Holmes was involved in more shady deals and he wanted his cut. And let's be real, who's going to say no to a man waving around a severed human arm? With this account, the police had a new star witness. Or even more than that, Holmes was the key to their whole case. Without his story, the charge against Brady was flimsy, at best, so they wanted to move quickly. On June 12, 1935, just two months after Jim's arm was first discovered in the aquarium, the coroner's inquest was set to start. But in the early hours of the morning, Holmes' car was found parked near the harbor. He was slumped over in the driver's seat, shot dead. One thing seemed clear. Whoever killed Jim Smith didn't want Holmes to talk. And for good reason. Because without Holmes' testimony, Brady was acquitted. He lived the rest of his life a free man and maintained his innocence until his death in 1965. Officially, the murders of Jim Smith and Reginald Holmes remain unsolved. But that's making a pretty big assumption. A major reason Patrick Brady was acquitted is because no one can prove Jim Smith was actually murdered. And it's possible Reginald Holmes wasn't murdered either. Coming up, conspiracy theories around how Jim Smith's arm wound up in the aquarium
1: and what really killed Reginald Holmes. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: At a glance, both Jim Smith and Reginald Holmes' causes of death seemed obvious. Jim's severed arm was found in an aquarium, so, well, he must have been eaten by a shark. Holmes' body was found with three gunshot wounds on the day he was supposed to testify, so he must have been murdered by someone who wanted to keep him quiet. But in almost a century, neither case has been solved, so they aren't so cut and dry. That brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Reginald Holmes wasn't murdered. Let's rewind to about a month before Holmes' death. In May, 1935, the Sydney police were actively investigating Jim Smith's murder. Patrick Brady had just told detectives that Holmes was the mastermind. Holmes went out to the harbor and tried to die by suicide. It caused a scene, and one of Holmes' associates called the police. When the authorities showed up, Holmes was still in the area on his boat. He probably didn't want to explain why he'd attempted suicide, so he revved the motor and sped away. The police had boats of their own and chased him. He was already a person of interest in a homicide, and now he was acting suspicious. The police chased Holmes for hours... Each time they got near, Holmes darted away again across the harbor. Finally, Holmes' brother arrived and managed to hop onto his boat. He somehow convinced Holmes to stop running and seek treatment for his injuries at the hospital. Once doctors confirmed Holmes was okay, the detectives set him down for questioning, which is, as we mentioned earlier, when he finally admitted he knew Brady and blamed Brady for Jim Smith's murder. Remember, Holmes then agreed to testify in court against Brady. But before he could, he died. Holmes was found with three gunshot wounds to his chest. But the car he was in showed no signs of a struggle. To the police, it indicated he'd been killed by someone he knew. Likely another mobster, someone who feared Holmes might implicate them when he testified against Brady. But Holmes was pretty high up in the Sydney underworld. So it's very possible the person with the most to lose by testifying in court was Holmes himself. Holmes knew that he'd bring shame to his family if all his crimes were revealed in court. His family was well-respected, but Holmes was complicit in check forgery and had Jim Smith sink his yacht to commit insurance fraud. He was also defrauding building contractors and smuggling just about anything you could smuggle. And, of course, he might have murdered Jim Smith and fed his arm to a shark. And crucially, Holmes was an insurance scam mastermind. He'd taken out multiple life insurance policies over time with a payout that would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars today. If he died by suicide, those policies were null and void. But if he was murdered, he could leave his family comfortable and save face. So maybe Holmes took out a hit on himself. Now, two men were eventually indicted for Holmes murder. However, the court couldn't prove their guilt, so they were never convicted. So perhaps Holmes' final scam was a success. The next conspiracy theory follows a similar tune. Jim Smith called the shots behind his death, too, because he wasn't murdered. He faked it. Before his arm was found in the Coogee Aquarium shark tank, Jim Smith was a low-level criminal in Sydney, Australia, but he was doing a lot more than just forging checks. He was also a police informant. Starting around 1920, Jim Smith owned the Roselle Sports Club, It boasted billiard tables and illegal betting on horse races. Through his small-time gambling ring, Jim made many connections in the Sydney underworld. And not just Brady and Holmes. Much like Chicago in the 1920s, Sydney was a hotbed of organized crime. We know Jim Smith had dirt on Holmes and was blackmailing him, but he likely had dirt on other criminals too because at some point, Jim got called down to the Sydney police station, accused of stealing billiard balls. Jim caved hard, revealing his involvement in drug smuggling and offering to be a police informant in exchange for his freedom. The police struck the deal. Jim took Detective Sergeant Percy Ahrens out on a boat and told him everything about the smuggling ring Jim also said he was worried that Holmes and his associates were going after another man who'd gotten on their bad side. Jim worried the crew might murder the guy. Everything went quiet for a while, until the police got wind of Jim's check fraud scam. They asked Jim what he knew, and he turned over an associate, con artist Stanley Watson. Stanley was the scam's face, cashing the checks. Jim probably didn't want to turn on his associate, but he had to keep his own record clean. Unfortunately for Jim, it backfired. Watson realized that since neither Jim nor Brady were caught in the fraud scheme, one of them had to be the man who turned him in. Brady convinced Watson it wasn't him, so the pair confronted Jim at his home, intimidating him and brandishing a gun. Jim gave them a few pounds so they'd leave him alone. Afterward, Jim's wife, Gladys, worried they hadn't given Brady and Watson enough money to shut them up. That very night, the Smiths showed up on Holmes' doorstep looking for a loan. But in that conversation, Jim and Gladys revealed the one piece of information that they definitely should not have told Holmes. That Jim was a suspected rat. The walls were closing in. Jim probably knew there was a target on his back, either from Watson and Brady, Holmes, or another one of the smugglers he'd sold out. The question is, was he scared enough to fake his own death? Remember, after Jim disappeared, his son received a letter, allegedly from Jim, saying not to worry, which makes sense. If he had to fake his own death, It'd be incredibly hard to live with the guilt of abandoning his son. And as far as we can tell, the police didn't look into the letter too closely. They took Gladys's word for it that the letter wasn't from Jim. But maybe Gladys was wrong. Maybe Jim really did write to their son. Then there's the arm. As one article in the Brisbane Telegraph said... Nothing would have been known of the tragedy had the shark not swallowed the tattooed arm. It was amazing that, of all sharks in the deep, this particular one should have been caught. So amazing, it seems planned. First off, the arm had a distinctive tattoo, guaranteeing it would be identified, even in 1935 when DNA testing was unheard of. Second, it was known around Sydney that sharks were eating people. Since February, three swimmers at three different beaches had been killed by sharks. It was so bad, the local government hired bounty hunters to capture or kill sharks spotted offshore. One of the creatures captured was none other than the tiger shark in the Coogee Aquarium. The most important thing is, the idea of a man-eating shark was hot in the popular conscience. Thirdly, The arm was revealed in an extremely public manner. It literally appeared in front of an audience. We ran the numbers and the odds of a shark eating a human body part in the ocean, then vomiting it up while in captivity are extremely low. It seems much more likely that the arm was intentionally placed in the tank to make it look like Jim Smith had been eaten by a shark. Unlike a lot of aquariums today, The pool was open from the top for viewing, so it wasn't impossible to drop a severed arm into the tank, along with some poison that would make the shark vomit. And when the shark died a few days later, it underwent a full examination. There was no other evidence of human remains in its digestive tract. If a hungry shark did try to eat Jim, well, it probably would have swallowed more than an arm. This theory was especially popular among local fishermen who were all familiar with Australia's shark population. But here's where the theory gets slippery. Would Jim Smith have been able to cut off his own arm? To fake his own death, Jim would have had to pull a James Franco in 127 hours. Then he'd have to slip it into the aquarium without attracting attention as a man missing an arm. And on top of that, he'd have to survive the major injury. People do survive losing arms all the time, but that's typically with medical assistance. Lastly, Jim removing his own arm doesn't entirely line up with the evidence. During the investigation, detectives had a medical officer examine the arm. He found no evidence of any blood oozing from the wound which could indicate that the arm was removed from an already dead body. It is possible Jim used a tourniquet, then raised his arm above his chest to remove as much blood as possible from the limb before severing it. But there is a simpler solution. The arm was planted by Jim's killer. Whether it was Brady, Holmes, Watson, or another mobster, They wanted to send a message, like the horse's head in The Godfather. It was either for the police, We got your informant. Look at him now. Or for any would-be informants, Look what happens when you betray us. Remember, Holmes told the police that Brady used Jim's severed arm to blackmail him. Maybe he was telling the truth. This is the rare case where the accepted truth is less believable than any conspiracy theory. Maybe Brady and Holmes killed Smith and dumped his body in the ocean, and the shark who ate the arm just happened to be caught. And maybe Holmes was killed by a fellow criminal to keep his secrets... secret. But I can't say the arm's appearance in the aquarium tank was a coincidence. Nor can I say that Reginald Holmes and Jim Smith didn't plan their fates. What is clear is that someone got away with their crimes. And when the story is hard to swallow, the truth will always come bubbling back up. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. Among the many sources we used, we found the book Shark Arm, A Shark, A Tattooed Arm, and Two Unsolved Murders by Philip Roop and Kevin Marr, and the collection 12 Crimes That Shocked the Nation by Alan J. Whitaker, extremely helpful to our research. Do you have a personal relationship to the stories we tell? Send a short audio recording telling your story to conspiracy stories at spotify.com. Until next time, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. This episode was written by Alex Burns and Maggie Admire, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Terrell Wells. Researched by Sapphire Williams, fact-checked by Claire Cronin and Mickey Taylor, and sound designed by Alex Button. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our head of production is Nick Johnson, and Spencer Howard is our post-production supervisor.
1: I'm your host, Carter Roy.